Well, we come now to the point in our service where we open God's Word together and see what He has to say to us. And so to read for us today is Hannah. The scripture reading for today is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, and Matthew chapter 7. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome, um, everybody. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Toronto. And wherever you are in your journey of faith and life, we are glad that you are here. We are continuing our series in this season of Easter on what it means to participate and have the power of Jesus' resurrection in us. Before I do that, though, I uh, feel obligated, called to um, say a... A preliminary happy birthday to my mom. Mom, I know your birthday's in a couple of days. I'm sorry I didn't wear a white shirt as you had requested, but you like me to wear white. My wife likes me to wear blue, so to honor both of the main women in my life, I'm wearing a white and blue shirt, so I hope that that's okay with you. For the rest of the Congregation of Grace, I think um, it would be important for us to take a moment right now Uh, Those of you who are part of Grace Toronto um, know our beloved brother, uh, Kiernan, who is a fellow teaching elder here at Grace. And a horrible tragedy has uh, befallen um, their family. One of his nephews was in a horrific accident and is, uh, at my last notice, clinging to life in the ICU unit of one of our Toronto hospitals. And so I thought it'd be good for us just to take a moment now and pray for the stringer extended family. Father, I thank you for Kiernan and Wendy, for Andrew and Beth, for their respective families. We ask now that you would come alongside of them with great power, that you would heal this young man miraculously, that you would console and be with and be present and allow to feel your love, their extended families. We pray for your grace to be poured out now. We pray that we as a church would come alongside of them in prayer and care. Be with us now in this time of darkness. Help us to walk through this valley. Help Kiernan and Wendy, Andrew and Beth, their kids. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in a dark time, but we're talking about the ability to walk through dark times with a different kind of power. The power and transformation that the gospel promises to every Christian Christian 
And so if you're here and you are not a Christian and you are listening to us, we ask that you think about what this could mean for you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, the gospel says you have been made new. Now live that way. You have resurrection power. Now use that power. As both Jeff and Tarek have mentioned in their past two weeks, this is not just an expectation for us as individuals. This is a calling and an obligation for us as a church community. How we treat each other, says Jesus, is what we will be known by. He says in John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know that you are by disciples if you have love for one another. Resurrection power must condense and distill itself in supernatural love toward one another. Several years ago, I was given a used fountain pen as a gift from an old friend. He said it probably needed a little tuning up, and so he told me to go to a store named Laywines that was experienced at these tune-ups. So I took it there to have them look at the pen and diagnose it, and the owner said, well, before we spend any money repairing it, let's take a moment to ensure it's genuine. And I said, it's genuine? You you mean they make counterfeit fountain pens? And I kind of chuckled and he said, oh, for this fountain pen, they sure do. And so he took one of those um, magnifying monocles that jewelers and apparently fountain pen owners use. And he started to look very carefully at it, but I noticed he was focusing on the nib. And I said, why are you looking at the nib? And he said, well, the counterfeiters have gotten really good. They can counterfeit the body of the pen perfectly now. But it is here in the quality and the craftsmanship of the nib that the truth is revealed. They can fake everything else, but they cannot fake this. The truth is in the nib. Men and women, what the gospel says in these verses is like the nib of that pen, how we treat each other, especially when we're in conflict with each other or have trouble getting along, when we're different from each other, how we treat each other is like the nib of that pen. This is where the truth of the resurrection life is centered and where the reality of the resurrection life is most fully and clearly revealed. This is a distinguishing trademark that distinguishes true Christianity from Sunday morning religiosity. How do you treat conflict? And differences when we don't naturally get along. And Paul says here, three things need to characterize us. Firstly, we need to bear each other with gospel power. Secondly, we need to complain to each other with gospel wisdom. And thirdly, we need to forgive each other with gospel love. Bear, complain, forgive. Bear with gospel power, our first point. The apostle tells us, No, actually commands us. It's in the imperative here to bear with one another. The word bear means to endure even when it is difficult. It can be used for simply lifting and bearing weight. That's exactly the kind of metaphor he wants us to have. In Matthew 17, 7, Jesus said to the Israelites who were rejecting him, questioning him, suspecting his motives all the time, he said, how long must I bear? Same Greek word, with you. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12, this same writer, the Apostle Paul said, when reviled by people, we bless. When persecuted by them, we bear, we endure. 
The gospel says, the gospel impels us to bear with these people who are difficult, even when they are making life difficult for us. It means to bear with the quirks of people of different personalities, even offensive behaviors. There are a great deal of people who offend us and annoy us, who provoke us. They're different from us. They come from different backgrounds. They have uh, different upbringings. Different, they come from different cultures, different races, different family of origins, different everything. And the easy thing to do is to quietly to move away from them, not to let them get too close, not to let them into your life, not to live life with them. And by the way, in our culture, we're encouraged to do just that. In this generation, our culture has trouble bearing with these kinds of other people. Technology has allowed us to find people all over the world that love what we love, that have the same hobbies we do, same desires, play the same games, wear the same clothes, have the same beliefs. They love what we love, they hate what we hate. And in this community of online homogeneity, we think we have grounds to avoid or bear other people who are different. Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, renowned social psychologist, also points out that there are several other cultural factors presently in play. The emerging generation, he says, has been brought up with three central beliefs through which they understand life. Firstly, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Forget the bumper sticker. It doesn't make you stronger. It makes you weaker. Therefore, you have a right not to be exposed to things that make you weaker. Something that might trigger you, you should avoid. Other people might trigger you so you can avoid them. Second thing, presupposition. My feelings can always be trusted. So if I feel hurt, I was hurt. What I feel is what is true. Third presupposition, life is a battle between good people and bad people. So if someone hurts me, they're a bad person. And they deserve my condemnation, my moving away. They deserve me not to bear with them, but to go after them, to condemn them, and to be vindicated. As a result, Haidt says that people today approach conflict and disagreement in what he calls a hypersensitive way. He says, each of us thinks we see the world directly as it really is. We further believe that the facts as we see them are there for everyone to see. Therefore, others should agree with us. If they don't agree, it follows that they either have not yet understood the relevant facts or they've been blinded by their own interests and ideologies. You see, they're wrong, they're bad. And therefore, he says, leaders in the business world see problems like hypersensitivity and constant conflict over small things beginning to develop in large organizations. Bright hires go running to human resources every time there's a conflict, and then they won't show up at a meeting if the person who supposedly offended them is also there. We don't bear very well. We can't bear much weight. But in contrast to this, the gospel says, bear the weight of people who might naturally annoy you, frustrate you, offend you. Put up with difficult people. 
especially those of us who call ourselves people of the gospel. The church is filled with all kinds of people, just like our society. Wonderful images of God we are, but also wonderfully annoying people we can be. Learn to bear the weight. Actually, the gospel goes farther. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Do you hear that? People of the gospel, people who believe in Jesus, who have resurrection power in them, are expected to, because they are empowered to, bear the weight of difficult people. If the gospel is really giving you new life and new power, you should be able to bear with one another. And in the church, it was an unbelievable truth in the early days. Jewish people with non-Jewish people, they usually despised each other in those days. But they would come together and worship together. Slaves and slave owners, we can't even imagine them being in the same room unless the slaves were required to. They would freely worship together. There was gospel power in their bearing. May this be a distinctive of us as a church in this day. Racially, socioeconomically, different personalities, introverts and extroverts. Diplomatic people versus straightforward and blunt people. Can we get together and bear one another? Here's one tip that may help you bearing with one another. And the tip is from the gospel itself. Think of yourself, as Tarek said, as more sinful than you actually are. I, was, um, uh, I grew up in a, in a family culture where you didn't bear much. You went after it a lot. And uh, whether it was uh, something offensive or even just something that didn't seem to be the best solution... And so I was very forthright uh, in my 20s and early 30s. And my mentor named John Smed finally sat me down and said, Dan, let me give you a clue for, that will help you for the rest of your life. You are like 60 grit sandpaper. And I don't know if you know anything about sandpaper. I didn't. I had to look it up. But 60 grit sandpaper is really coarse. It's used to like strip paint right off of wood or something like that. It's really harsh. And he said, that's your personality, and you're not seeing it. When you go into relationships, you need to see yourself as potentially offensive, potentially wrong. That will help you in all your relationships. And I think too many of us walk around and we think, my personality is pretty normative. It's pretty upright. If I'm hurt, it's their fault. But if you think with gospel truth about your personality and about the amount of sinfulness and the deceitfulness of your heart, could it be true that you're one personality equally able to offend people even if you are one of the least offensive people that you know? People who are really um, aggressive and forthcoming in their words can be very intimidating and offensive. People who are very careful with their words 
can sow suspicion and unease in others because they don't know what they're really thinking so they don't feel safe. You can make someone feel unsafe from the opposite ends of the personality spectrum. Bear with one another with gospel power. Where do you get the power? Because the spirit of Jesus who bore with people who rejected him who bore with people who questioned him, who bore with his own disciples who didn't understand his motives, who bore with people who wanted to use him for their own glory and career aspirations and for those who tortured him and killed him. He bore with them and he loved them to the end. That spirit is in all of us. Bear with gospel power. Secondly, complain with gospel wisdom. Now, there are times when you cannot bear it and you should not bear it any longer. And then here the gospel says, when a complaint is justified, you should complain. But now let's look at those two parts. When is a complaint justified and how should we complain? He doesn't talk much about it. He just says he moves right to forgiveness because he's assuming a process. But other verses help us with this. So let's stop for a moment. Let's just think, how do we complain right now in our culture? Well, in our culture, as I said, we bear very little. We can't take much weight. But when we complain, we complain quickly and to others, not to the person whom we have a problem with. We take offense easily. We talk about the person to others and now even resort to social media and publicly, maybe carefully, shame them or indirectly talk about them. I was just talking to someone um, not too long ago living in the States and in their fairly large organization, they had a fairly respected leader who was working with a lot of other leaders and all of a sudden they left and a couple of years after leaving this fairly large organization wrote this long social media rant naming a bunch of people without their names but just describing what they had done and what their personality was like such that this friend of mine reading it knew exactly without being named who was named. And then he started getting calls wondering if he was one of those because they, they didn't know well enough. And so he's been having to deal with the fallout of several years ago, this person working. Well, this is pretty typical of our culture, and I need to say it's wrong. It's called gossip and or slander, and I don't want to spend too much time proving to you that it's wrong because you know that it's wrong. Every single one of us has probably, if we're over 18, has, if we're over 14, has experienced being gossiped against and the pain of it. And watching others gossip to them or them gossiping to others and knowing the wrong of it. Now, that's not how you complain. Here's how the gospel says. The gospel says, firstly, what should you complain about? A gospel complaint, and we can nuance this a little bit, but I'll give you a basic template. A gospel complaint is this, something that the other person is doing that is sinful. Not just a personality difference or something annoying, but something that is sinful, that they're doing particularly a pattern of sin that is hurtful to you and others. Second qualification if it's not sinful in itself, but because of you are, who you are and how you're responding to it and how you keep interpreting it, it creates sin in you. So sin is either being done by the act and behavior or sin is being created in the recipient. That's when you should complain. So let's look at that. Is it actually sinful behavior? 
One of the things that people in conflict mediation talk about a lot is the issue of what you're experiencing and the emotions you're feeling and the truth of what's happening. Because an event has happened that has created hurt in you. And you are assuming that the hurt is true. I say to you, as professional conflict mediators say, mediators say, your feelings are real. Your experience of being hurt is true. But the event may not have been hurtful except for the way you interpreted it. And so it's okay to doubt and question the way you've interpreted and the way your emotions have run. Are you experiencing the emotion of being hurt? Sure. Does that mean that's the truth of what happened at the event that the person was hurtful? Maybe. Your emotions are telling you what is real, but they may not be telling you what is true. So, is this complete sinful? I sometimes go to someone who is wise and objective and explain it and have them dissect it for me. Do you think they were being hurtful? And then they let them ask questions. And very often, probably 50 or 60% of the time, they go, no, I think you're just interpreting this wrongly. Go back and question them about what was going on. That's so helpful. Is it sinful or is it making you sin? So a few years ago, there was something that was making me sin that my wife was doing. And she wasn't doing anything sinful but it was making me sin, so we had to talk about it. She was triggering sin in me by the way that she was responding to me publicly. And so after one of these events, she looked bruised. I felt terrible, but I felt bruised. And so I just said, when you say this, it triggers this in me because of my family of origin. And so she said, yeah, and I don't, I'm not meaning it the way you're thinking about it. So we realized that we had to find a better way to communicate. And so we talked about some, some words like, hey, honey, can I push back for a moment? When I hear those words, I know she's about to do something and I can control the trigger because I know she's not meaning to strip me or, or humiliate me or do the things that because of my family of origin, I thought she was trying to do. So we learned that because it was creating sin in me, we needed to address it. So when is a complaint worthy of talking about? when it is sinful or when it is creating sin in you as the recipient and interpreter of it. Now, how to complain, okay? We talked about the culture's way of complaining, telling others, even maybe going to social media. But here, the way to complain is to go to the person that you have the conflict with. And now here, our second passage is so important. How do you complain? Remember what it said in Matthew 7, why do you see the speck in the brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? First take the log out of your eye, then address the speck in their eye. Okay, so from this, we're going to learn a few principles. Firstly, address the log in your eye, okay? Slow down. Don't go running to conflict. I used to run into conflict not having thought it through, filled with emotion. It was the worst way to do it. I still have to fight that tendency. Slow down and examine yourself. Why am I approaching them instead of bearing it? Is there sin here? Or was I just hurt? Secondly, am I approaching them out of love or anger or need to be vindicated? What's my motivation? Thirdly, what's my goal? 
Do I want reconciliation and more love and restoration? Or do I want vindication or vengeance? Fourthly, where is my own sin in this? Did did I catalyze this behavior of theirs? Am I contributing to it? And so I first slow down so that when I actually go, I have slowed down and tried to see the log in my own eye. Maybe even have talked to people. So slow down. Secondly, make a speck out of what they've done. I do it in two ways. I sandwich it, and then I separate. I sandwich and I separate. Now, I'm not great at this, but I'm learning to do this better. To sandwich something is to come to them and express love for them as a person. I love you as a person. That's the beginning and the end of the conversation. When, when Paul had to confront Peter about the racism of Peter refusing to have dinner with the Gentiles, to eat with the Gentiles, he said, Peter, you're not in line with the gospel. I know you believe the gospel. I support you as a leader, but you're not in line with what you believe. It was, it was a loving way. He sandwiched his critique amidst support and love. And then secondly, what he did here was he separated. He separated Peter's behavior from Peter's person. I know you love Jesus, but your behavior is not in line with what you love. He's separating his behavior from his person. So he sandwiches and then he separates. He makes it a speck. Log, ask yourself. Slow down, ask the questions. Finally, so slow down. That's the log part. Then turn theirs into a speck. Sandwich and separate. And finally, give space after you've complained to be challenged. To have your interpretation corrected. To hear their heart motivation to allow them to confess or to them to challenge you that something you've done catalyzed that as a response from them and you hurt them before they hurt you. That you are interpreting things wrongly. So slow it down. Consider your own motivations, your own goals, your own sin. Then move in and sandwich your complaint with love and then separate behavior from the person and then stand back and give space to be corrected to be affirmed, to hear confession, to be challenged. Slow down, sandwich, separate, space. That's how you would give a complaint. Finally, that's gospel wisdom in how to complain. Finally, let's look at how to forgive. It says forgiving, if anyone has a complaint against one another. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here, here the apostle specifically says, as you've been forgiven by Christ, you forgive. You must forgive. It's an imperative. The gospel only gives us one way to act in conflict, and that is to forgive. Now, there's something presupposed, right? Yeah? You see here, hidden in this discussion of forgiveness, Paul's assuming that repentance and confession have come. In other biblical passages, this becomes clear that they're inextricably tied together. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He just talks about confessing there. Paul here just talks about 
complaining and forgiving, but the whole matrix is included in the short summaries by both of them. They're inextricably put together. And I want to say this. Our culture apologizes, but it, the gospel confesses. We see apologies all over the place, expressing remorse over sin and its consequences. But confession and repentance, part of the forgiveness dynamic, they're deeper. They see the intrinsic wrong of the action before God. My behavior is hurtful to you and hurtful to God. I own that and I want to change. So there's repentance and then there's asking for forgiveness. That's a deeper, more beautiful, kind of apology. So when a complaint is made, because sin has happened, the gospel says, own your sin. Turn from your sin or repent of it. Confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Own, turn, confess. Ask for forgiveness. And if you have had someone do that, the gospel says, Extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift that you give to other people. But it's a gift the gospel says you were called to give to those who are actually repenting. Now, we should forgive because Christ has forgiven us, but it goes deeper. We're called to forgive in the same manner that Christ forgave us. So let's just think about Jesus for a moment. What was Jesus' motivation to go to the cross to capture and purchase our forgiveness? It was love. It was love for us. In Mark 10, 45, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did it because he loves us. He served us because he loves us. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us out of love. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, it says that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has made us alive. Do you hear that? The motivation that Christ and his Father and the Spirit had is just pure love. And so we're called to move toward another person in conflict situations out of love for them, out of desiring their flourishing. Secondly, what was the goal of Christ in, 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 in going to the cross, in becoming a human being and living and dying and rising? It's to reconcile us to God. The goal was reconciliation. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you hear that? He wants to make us beautiful to God. So beautiful that God reclaims us as his sons and daughters. His motivation was love. His goal was full reconciliation and his process was to bear the weight of our sin and take the injustice of sin that he didn't deserve upon himself. 
It says in Galatians 3, he became a curse for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore, there's that same Greek word, our sins in his body on the tree. You see, Jesus took your sin and mine. They weren't his. We hadn't even confessed them to him, but he voluntarily went and he bore the weight of the guilt of it. He took the injustice of it because he didn't deserve it upon himself that we could get the grace and the mercy from it. He was willing to absorb the cost of sin because to forgive someone's sin is to let go of the right to be vindicated and to have justice poured out upon them. That's why we and how we are to move into conflict, desiring and being willing to absorb. When we forgive someone, we absorb their sin and guilt of it. Motivation, love. Goal, reconciliation. Process, absorbing the sin of others and forgiving it. And finally, what's the result? Restored communion. That's why Jesus did it. He did it so that there would be restored communion. First Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have been restored as beloved children of God by what Jesus did upon the cross. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 8, it quotes Jeremiah 31 in saying, the God will remember our sins no more. That's full forgiveness and reconciliation. I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. God lets go of remembering our sin. I know that's really hard in our day. Even our concepts of restorative justice and others, uh, forms of justice, don't go that far. We gain tremendous social and cultural currency right now from being victims. It has a kind of magic to it. But C.S. Lewis, in his Narnia Chronicles, says the gospel has a deeper magic. The magic of full forgiveness, even the letting go and forgetting of sins. And the key here is to say, I, I may be a victim of someone else's sin, but I'm also a perpetrator. I have sinned against God and I have received his forgiveness. Men and women, you cannot give away what you don't possess. If you don't have, possess full forgiveness, unmerited, unconditional forgiveness from Jesus, it is so hard to actually fully, fully forgive those who have sinned against you. So that's where you get the power from grace, from the grace of Jesus at the cross, as a recipient of God's grace poured into you at an infinite level, you now have the power to forgive, to give grace and forgiveness. Grace has given you the power to move toward restoration even by forbearing justice and forgiving sin. It goes deeper than restorative justice can. It's so beautiful. That's why Paul says, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Final implications and applications. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to hear this. You you have the power in the gospel available to you in Jesus to forgive at this deep a level. 
Do you want such freedom from your own sin and your own guilt, such fullness of grace and experience of forgiveness that you can freely give it away? Even at that costly a level, it's available to you. Come to Jesus. Come today. Ask Jesus to come into your life. Ask him to forgive your sin and you will experience the forgiveness of all of your sin and grace will wash over you. And the resurrected life will come into you and empower you to begin to live that life to others. Now, if you're here and you are a Christian, I want to remind you this power is in you. The resurrected Jesus by his spirit, the spirit of one who bore the cost out of love, the spirit of one who bore the weight of difficult, rejecting, suspicious, unfair people, the spirit of the one who bore the weight of the injustice of our sin upon himself and became a curse for us to forgive our sin, to pay for it. That lives in you. And so I ask you, in the way that we deal with conflict, at the nib where the truth is displayed, what do we want to look like? If we move away from people we don't like, if we keep resentments and hurts in our heart, hold grudges and criticisms, talk behind people's back instead of to them, instead of loving them and moving toward them to reconcile, who are we resembling? Are we resembling Jesus? We're resembling the anti-Jesus. That's who we're looking like. But when we move towards others in love by the Spirit of God, confessing our sin, confronting when necessary, confronting well in a gospel way, removing the log from our own eyes, seeing our own sin, loving people, supporting people, sandwiching our critique, separating behavior from person, And then freely granting forgiveness when given. When we do that, who do we resemble? We resemble the Lord Jesus Christ for the world to see. Grace Toronto Church, let us resemble Jesus in the way that we do conflict, both as individuals and as a church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. We love you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have shown us the way to live with difficult people because we are those difficult people. I am that difficult person and you have borne with me the weight of my sin, the weight of the way I hurt others, the way the weight of the way we all do. Help us to experience our sinfulness and see the log in our own eye. Then experience your grace and then move toward others as other grace recipients and let us move in love and tenderness toward them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as expected, there are you know, 16 messages, uh, so I'll answer just a couple very quickly. Uh, first, can you tell your mother that our church <laughs> is thankful uh, for her son and happy birthday? Happy birthday, Mom, from uh, Grace Toronto. Um, sorry about that. That was That's what happens when... Q&A. Okay. Uh, Forbearance is an often talked about response to conflict, but how should we stand up for yourself when hurt? Jesus did both forbear and fight. So I think, as I said, you stand up for yourself when you're sinned against or you are being caused to sin by the behavior. Those are the two ways that you know when to stand up. That's what you'll see about Jesus. When other people stand up to them, um, and he would sometimes probe people who were misinterpreting him and, you know, like Mary.
why, why are you doing this, Martha? You know, my behavior towards Mary is causing you to sin. Okay. How do we bear with one another without being overly complacent to sin? How do we properly guard ourselves from corruption? Okay. Same question, same answer. When, when, when what you're bearing with is just difficult personalities or different expressions or different cultures, but it's not sin, you're not being complacent about sin, but when it is sin, that's when it starts to attract proper complaint. So you don't have to be complacent about sin because once you see it, it tells you maybe it's time to move in. But you check to make sure it is sin and not just your own interpretation. Um, when is it okay to ask God for his revenge on my enemy like David did in the Psalms? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so who's your enemy in the New Testament? Who's your enemy? Who's the battle against? Who? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities and authorities in the spiritual realm of this present darkness. Who's your enemy? There are people who are enemies of the progress of the gospel because they are being duped and used and misled and deceived by the real enemy. They are, in fact, servants, unwitting servants of the real enemy. Who's your enemy? That's your enemy. How do you fight him? by acting like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that our battle is not against flesh and blood. But too often, we think it is. And in that deception, we fall prey to the lies of the father of lies, the devil. And we go after each other and bite and devour one another in ways that do not reflect you, but look so much like him. Help us to have open eyes to see the depth of our sin, the depth of your grace, the depth of the power that your grace gives us to live lives of love and grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.